This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Russia is becoming a richer society, a more complex society, a more educated society. And with that become preferences for a more open system of government. And now The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. As you know, there were elections in Italy a few months ago and it wasn't clear what kind of government the country would get, whether it would be able to form a government at all. Populist parties of different stripes won nearly two-thirds of the vote, and it wasn't clear what the path forward might be. Well, it now very much looks as though Italy will have a new government, and it is a strange postmodern iteration on the old historical red-brown pacts. One of the governing parties is going to be the frightful League, which used to be called the Northern League, a deeply xenophobic party. And the other movement is called Five Stars. Its origins are complicated, but it started very much on the left with a comedian, Beppe Grillo, who in some ways had similarity with somebody like John Stewart, railing against the failings of Silvio Berlusconi's government throughout the 2000s and the early 2010s and calling for some pretty left-wing positions like more environmental protections public ownership of municipal water, and so on and so forth. Well, these two parties are now going to form a government together. And though that is puzzling at first sight, it shows what I've been arguing about populism for a long time, which is that the particular policy positions of populists are ultimately less important than their political vocabulary and political imagination. What populists have in common is that they claim that they alone stand for the people, that political elites are so deeply corrupt that they need to be swept aside and the system itself deeply reformed, and that there's no legitimacy to anybody who wants to put obstacles into the way of the people expressing their will directly. And once you agree on those points, you can apparently cooperate even when you seemingly come from different sides of the political spectrum. Greece has a similar government with a far-left Syriza party in coalition with a far-right party, Arnel. Italy is now following in its footsteps, a much more important country in Europe. And my fear is that we will see more red-brown coalitions between authoritarian populists in the years to come. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me. So the amazing thing about this new book that, that you've just published is that it gives you this sort of great arc from hope to despair. You know, at the moment, the relationship between the United States and Russia is obviously very poor. And the prospects for democracy in Russia seem to be very dim. Take us back to the beginning of your work in the White House and the National Security Council and then the beginning of your time as 
ambassador in Moscow and try to explain why it is that at that point you were actually, you know, quite hopeful. Well, I'd really like to take you back to the early 90s, which was a much more optimistic time when I was working in the Soviet Union and Russia. There seemed to be a transition to democracy there. The Cold War had ended largely in part because of domestic politics and domestic political change inside the Soviet Union and Russia. At least that's my argument in the book. And then, you know, I speed forward through that history pretty quickly in the book to talk about the difficulties and the twists and turns and the ups and downs. By the time we arrived at the White House in January 2009, I was not optimistic about prospects for another democratic modernization moment, although we did have a partner in the Kremlin, President Medvedev, that most certainly leaned that way compared to the prime minister, Prime Minister Putin. And as we got to know him, it was clear to me that he had those preferences. I just don't think he had the power within his system to move that way. But we had a different agenda. It wasn't just about what happened internally there. We had some very big pieces of business that we could not get done without the Russians. The START Treaty was expiring, for instance, who had been controlling the reduction and transparency of nuclear weapons for 20 years. We needed to follow on to that. One of the biggest dramas of our early time, it took eight years to complete, but was how to deny Iran a nuclear weapon that was high on President Obama's agenda. And third, a lot of people forget this because it's ancient history, but back then we were surging in Afghanistan. We were increasing the number of troops there, and we were also bringing the war against terrorists and insurgents sometimes into Pakistan. And so we needed to decrease our dependency on Pakistan. When we came into government, I think it was around 90% of all of our supplies went through Pakistan. So we had this idea to expand the northern route, the northern distribution network, as it was called. And that we needed Russia to do that. You can't get to Afghanistan from the north without going through Russia. So I know that there's a lot of reasons to get along with Russia, but I think it went beyond that, didn't it? I mean, you know, Barack Obama came to office promising a reset with Russia and implying in many ways that the reason for the depth of a crisis in the U.S.-Russian relationship had been with choices that George W. Bush had made. And you in the book explain the reasons why the Soviet Union ended and the country seemed to democratize for a few years in the early 1990s with the choices of particular individuals in a way that was a theory that Barack Obama had about the state of U.S.-Russian relationships, that they had started to sour over the course of the 2000s because in part American politicians had made the wrong choices. So what was the reason for that part of your optimism at the time? Well, I would say two things. That's a great question. One was we were not going to make some of the wrong choices that the Bush administration made. Top of that list, by the way, was the war in Iraq. And in the first meeting between Prime Minister Putin and President Obama, Putin went, this is summer of 2009. We were at his house for a three-hour breakfast. And Putin went on this long lecture about all the mistakes that the Bush administration made, kind of leaving President Bush on the side, by the way, but it was a long litany and it was a long list. And when he got to Iraq, the president, President Obama said, well, I agree with you, you're right. <laughs> and Putin was a little surprised by that. And he reminded him that, you know, I was against that war long before it was popular to be so. And that was a hint that we were gonna be different. So you're right, we wanted to pivot differently. But there's a second thing I wanted to talk about that gets less attention. And it's on my mind because of the way that Trump talks about Russia. We never set as a goal, at least I never, the government's complicated, lots of people have their different goals. 
Uh, we never set as a goal better relations with Russia. That was never the objective. We reversed it. You know, and we debated this, by the way. You know, do we try to change the mood music first and then we achieve our objectives? Or do we, and we ended up doing this, seek objectives, concrete things without talking about friends and, you know, better relations, get those done first, and then that will lead to better relations and uh, changing the mood music and all that stuff. So that was definitely the strategy of the reset. At times it got complicated. I would always scratch out the word friend in the president's talking points as he got more comfortable with Medvedev would use it just uh, naturally. But that was the strategy. And by the way, I think the strategy worked for many years. By the peak of the reset, we had changed the mood music so that wins, uh, the president like he used to call them win-win outcomes on arms control or Iran or WTO, we worked on that as well, getting Russia into the World Trade Organization. That created momentum for some much harder things, including probably the hardest thing we ever did with Russia, getting Medvedev to sign off on a Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force in Libya. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So you mentioned the word win-win outcome, and I think that's a really key piece of vocab and understanding, you know, international relations, especially in the populist era. So Donald Trump claims that he puts America first, and obviously this has horrible historical connotations, and there's reasons to be worried about it. But in a sense, I think that that's sort of trivial, which is to say that Barack Obama, I'm sure, put American interests first, even though I grew up in Germany. German leaders sometimes pretend that they don't put Germany's interests first in the same hard-nosed way. I think, realistically, they absolutely do. So for me, the biggest difference in how world leaders act isn't so much about whether they put their own country first, but in how they perceive the structure of interests in the world. Do they think that they can have these win-win outcomes by working with other countries or not. So you described the sort of ability to have some of these straightforward successes in the early years of Obama's presidency with, with Russia, and then things start to go sour. So I'd love to hear from you both the story of how they started to go sour, but also sort of, do you think they went sour because actually there just aren't that many win-wins between Russia and the United States? There actually aren't that many things that the two countries can fruitfully cooperate on? Or is it that Vladimir Putin just has, in that sense, I would say, a Trumpian understanding of world affairs, which yeah. is to deny the existence of, of those kinds of win-wins? Yeah, it's a question I wrestle with in the book at length. And I wrestled in discussions with both candidate Obama and then President Obama when we were in government together, because I'm an academic after all. That's the theory of realism versus liberalism, which you just described. I teach a course on that. And, you know, sometimes I would be an observer watching and listening to people and coding them theoretically. And here's what I would say happened from my point of view. Medvedev definitely bought into you know, in academia, we would call it a, a liberal uh, view of the world. That is, it's not zero sum, that this can be good for Russia, good for the United States. And it's not a concession. I think a lot of people write about 
international politics, like people are doing favors for each other. And and I never saw a world leader ever do a, a favor for anybody. They only do things when the outcome is good for the way they define their interests. That's very important. Not all leaders define their interests in the same way. And for that period of reset, that's the way the president and Medvedev framed everything. In fact, when they signed the START Treaty to reduce by 30% the number of nuclear weapons in the world, it was a great day in Prague. At the end of his remarks in Russian, Medvedev turned to Obama and said, and he said in English, he said, this is a win-win for Russia and America, right? So you could see that philosophical agreement about the nature of international politics. Putin is a realist, or I don't even know, I don't even like that word because it, it, it makes it sound like it's too smart. Like realism is then idealism is the opposite, uh, rationalism, that makes liberals irrational. But he sees the world in zero-sum terms, plus two for America, minus two for Russia. And number two, United States is the greatest competitor in the world for Russia. On good days, a competitor, on bad days, an enemy. And number three, and this really was the crux of what triggered this latest confrontation between the United States and Russia. He sees in the United States a country that is willing to use overt and covert force to overthrow regimes that we don't like in the definition of what we describe as our interests. And those are adversarial to Russia's interests. And by the way, there's a lot of evidence to support Putin's hypothesis about American foreign policy over the last several decades. And to me, the downward spiral really starts in Tunisia, of all places, because it's the Arab Spring. It's Tunisia, it's Egypt, then Syria and Libya. And in all of those cases, we, I worked at the White House then, most of that year I worked on the Middle East, by the way, because of my background in democratization, we were reacting to those events. We were not sparking those events. Putin saw, but he didn't believe that because Putin doesn't believe that individuals act on their own behalf. He saw our sinister hand behind all those events. And then we did get involved in Libya, and that was confirming evidence of his theory of American power. And then it was punctuated at the end of the year by massive demonstrations in Russia, sparked by falsification, a falsified a vote. People came out on the streets first to protest the vote and then to protest the Putin regime. And Putin then saw yet again the American hand behind that. And I think that truly was the end of the reset. So I have a question about this. So in the book, you describe very scarily and movingly how, you know, you arrive as ambassador in Moscow and you immediately portrayed as you know, essentially the ringleader of the American instigated forces for the overthrow of Vladimir Putin's government. And what they used to make that case is partially the fact that, you know, as a political scientist, you had studied how revolutions happen in parts of Africa and so on, and partially that you'd worked for the National Democratic Institute, which is part of NED, part of the National Endowment for Democracy, and which does obviously, you know, support the activities of pro-democracy activists in different parts of the world. So, you know, two questions for you. The first is, you know, can you can you explain to us a little bit what it was like to to arrive in Moscow and have this incredible hostility orchestrated against you on the most prominent news media in the country? But secondly, does that change your view of what the United States should do, how it should act. Because it seems to me that there's a really cynical view of this, which is to say, you know, if we interfere in other countries, how can we complain if other countries interfere in ours? And that obviously has, 
renewed significance after 2016 election. And that seems to me to be a little bit too simple, actually, because there is a real difference between supporting people who are fighting for free elections against a brutal dictator and trying to undermine another country's democratic system. So on the moral level, I'm not very attracted to that argument. We don't have to engage with it too seriously. But on a more prudential level, I have more trouble thinking through this case, which is to say, does helping the opposition in some countries, you know, say in Tunisia, against a brutal dictator, you know, up to 2011, does that instigate so much paranoia in authoritarian superpowers like Russia and perhaps in the coming years China that it threatens to undermine our purpose and our goals in a much more fundamental way? And is that a reason to second guess some of that kind of engagement or not? Well, Russia is a complicated case in that world. And I mean, just because uh, I'm talking to you, I just one of the things I'm remembering, you don't get to hit uh, the delete button for all your publications when you become the U.S. ambassador. And I've written a lot, either good for my academic career, tragic for my diplomatic career. And the Russians, especially the people that do this propagandistic work, they have no constraints when it comes to actually portraying what you said. And one of the most quoted pieces and memes and was on television all the time was a journal of democracy piece that I wrote in the year 2000, because I know you've published there. And they basically paraphrased something I said and incorrectly, right? But they would actually put the footnote there. And I would dare people to go look it up. And of course, ne nobody ever did because they don't have JSTOR passwords. But it basically said, if Putin doesn't become a Democrat, this is back in 2000, I published this piece. We're going to have to do the same to him as we did to Milosevic. And I didn't write that. I never wrote that. I went When it first came out, I was scared. I went back and got the article, and I didn't write it. But they kind of made it sound like I did. So that was part of the propaganda against me. But I want to answer your big policy question, because it's a hard policy issue. And in Russia, I want to remind your listeners, when I opened up the NDI office in Moscow in 1992, I was not, and we were not interfering in the domestic affairs of Russia. We were invited by the Russian government to work with them to consolidate democratic institutions and to learn about democratic institutions. And I think that gets mixed up in people's minds. It was a brand new democracy. We were heroes. I was treated like a rock star by the government. And we worked with the opposition parties as well, but the government wanted us to be there. And just to give you a flavor of what we talked about in those seminars, you know, we would have a, a workshop on electoral laws. What's the difference between first past the post and proportional representation? We would have a workshop on federalism. We would have a workshop on how to win elections, you know, uh, campaign technology. In other words, most of what we were doing, I believe, was education about how democracies work. But here's the complicating part. Russia then becomes more autocratic under Vladimir Putin, pivots in this other way. And yet this work that started in the 90s would continue on until uh, actually it happened on my watch in 2012. The Russian government said, we don't longer want you to be here and with all your uh, partners. And that's the year they closed down USAID and ran out of the country NDI and their counterpart, the International Republican Institute. You know, we did a policy review in 2009. I was the person running point on it. And as part of the reset, 
we said very explicitly in our documents, you know, once they're declassified, we are going to practice dual track diplomacy. We're going to engage with society and we're also going to engage with the government, uh, vice versa, right? Government first, society second. And that's because we believe that universal values, A, are universal, and B, the advance of them serves America's interests as well as other countries. And by the way, I don't think Medvedev disagreed with that as president in 2009. When we talked to him about it, and I listened to him talk about it, he was not opposed to that strategy. And when Obama first went there in July 2009, he spent the first day with Medvedev, he had breakfast with Putin, and then the rest of his second day, he met with business, students, civil society, and opposition leaders, the most militant opposition leaders we could find. And nothing happened. No big deal. No news story. It was a non-event. We couldn't even get our Western press, by the way, to write about it. We wanted to, to show to our Republican critics that we cared about these things. But fast forward to 2011 and then 2012, when I arrived as ambassador, we were doing the same thing. We were practicing exactly the same policy. We didn't change anything, but the context had changed radically in Russia because of the demonstrators out on the streets challenging Putin's regime. And one last thing, I'm sorry to go on long about this, but this means a lot to me. We never gave any money or in-kind support to the political opposition. That was a line we were, were not going to cross in the Obama administration. But you hinted, and I think it's really important for people to remember, in other countries, in other administrations, they did cross that line. Serbia 2000 is one I used to hear about all the time, where we did, the U.S. government and, and you know, most likely the CIA, gave millions of dollars to the opposition there. And so trying to explain the difference between our nuanced policy in Russia in 2012 and those other cases, I tried many times as an ambassador, but very difficult thing to explain. So I agree with you on the facts in Russia. I, I guess the question I have is a little broader than that. You know, the way that I look at the world, I agree with you that there are certain universal values that I start from the rights of individuals. I am a liberal in a philosophical sense. And I want to promote not our particular way of life, as some American presidents like to put it, or our particular cultural values, but the respect for each individual's rights. And I don't think that we have some great principled reason for why we should think that a society which is suffering under a brutal dictator, somehow that culture of a dictator being charged needs to be respected. I think that's a form of cultural relativism I personally reject. And so I'm in principle quite comfortable with a view of a world in which I say, well, obviously, we should stop especially autocratic powers from trying to influence our elections. And at the same time, there's nothing normatively wrong with us going out into the world and you know, supporting opposition movements in different countries fight against brutal regimes. And in fact, you know, full disclosure, I came back a, about a week ago from Dakar, Senegal, from the World Movement for Democracy. Oh, you were there. Um, I was there, yeah, in which a lot of the people who are supported by some of these American institutions and lots of other civil society actors around the world come together. And they're, you know, wonderful, inspiring activists who are organizing civil society and protecting minority groups in brutal regimes around the world. And, you know, my instinct is to be unapologetic about that work. That seems like the right thing to do. But I guess the question is, does it then give rise to that kind of paranoia in countries like Russia? So how do we deal with simultaneously shutting down foreign influence in our elections and defending on principle or perhaps making some compromises on 
the circumstances under which we support or don't support various kinds of opposition movements and dictatorships around the world? Yeah, it's a complex question. And, you know, in Russia, it becomes a whataboutism story all the time. And, you know, if you're doing this here, then why can't we do a similar thing in your country? I guess the way I look at it, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, there has to be clear red lines. And I do not believe, and I probably wouldn't have said this a decade ago, by the way. So my ideas on this have evolved. I wrote a whole book, by the way. The last book I wrote was called Advancing Democracy Abroad, Why We Should and How We Can. And since writing that book, I think I've changed a little bit. So one, I would say no direct U.S. government money to political parties and political candidates. That's a law we have in my country. So that's a norm we should respect abroad. And I say it both for normative reasons, but also practical reasons. You do that and you immediately are tainting people in places like Russia that have no chance. The leader of their opposition, by the way, just to give some context to it, his name is Alexei Navalny, just arrested last week again. He never met with me. He did not want to be seen with me because he didn't want to be tainted by an association with the U.S. government. Number two, never stop talking about democracy and human rights or President Obama liked the phrase universal values better than those terms, but we used them all as a way to try to get in favor with some uh, government like Russia or autocratic leader to achieve some other ends. And again, I think it's a normative thing. I don't believe in that kind of linkage. And I also think it's a practical thing. I think people are naive to think that by stop talking about uh, democracy, they're going to do you a favor. Putin's only going to do what he thinks is in his interest, irrespective of what you say about democracy and human rights. And then number three, the hard part is what I call, uh, how do you support nonpartisan, non-governmental organizations? And the two parts are hard about it is what's an NGO that's nonpartisan and then under what conditions of transparency and, and legal infrastructure do you have in place to allow them to operate? Because we have those NGOs in America, by the way. I work at an NGO called Stanford University, and we go out and seek uh, foreign funding for some of the projects we do. But there are laws that govern it. And the question is, how do you define nonpartisan and how do you define the, the rules of transparency? And the first one was especially difficult when I was ambassador, because back then, NDI, National Democratic Institute, supported a, an election observer group called Golas Voice, and their job was just to enhance free and fair elections and monitor elections, right? We considered that nonpartisan work. Putin considered it a highly partisan work because monitoring their elections meant that you were helping the opposition in an election that he was trying to falsify, and that became a big source of tension. Last thing I'll say on this, I think we in the U.S., I can't speak for other countries, but I think we in the U.S. would do ourselves a great favor to clean up the boundaries between the state and non-state actors. You know, today you have USAID uh, in the business of democracy promotion. That's part of the government. You have DRL, uh, an entity in the State Department that gives grants to non-governmental organizations abroad. Then you have NED that you mentioned, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is separate from the government, but gets its money from Congress. And the lines will always be somewhat blurry, but I think just the more you separate and put into the foundation world and the private sector world, the non-governmental world, 
direct assistance, the better we'll be. And so I would like to see, you know, the State Department to get out of giving grants directly and instead have NED or, or even a new civil society foundation set up that has separation from the government. That's a great and pretty convincing answer in my mind about sort of how we should govern our behavior abroad. What about the inverse? So obviously, we're still getting to the bottom of what exactly happened in the 2016 elections with Russian interference, but it's quite clear that the Russians did try in one way or another to influence the elections. How do we respond to that, both in terms of bilateral relationships with countries that clearly have a hostile intent to undermine our electoral process, and in terms of the institutions and procedures we need in place in order to stop them from doing that? And you know, to what extent is this a question about Russia? as opposed to, you know, all other countries in the world. You know, I started to think over the last year or two that China in the long run is going to have far greater capacity and potentially far greater incentive to try and do at scale what, you know, the Russians have proven the concept for. When I think in, in that sense, the, the Russian interference may be an opportunity because it allows us to figure out what our defenses need to be before we potentially face an even more concerted attack. Yeah, I agree. Uh, although I don't think we're using that opportunity very well right now. But we're not using many opportunities very well right now, I think. That's yeah. true. That's a good point. Well, first of all, only recently have Americans begin to talk about disinformation and fake news. But these are old traditions. And most certainly when I was ambassador, I experienced it directly. Disinformation about me, photoshopping my head onto somebody else to make it appear that I was campaigning for the opposition, taping my speech I gave at a hotel one time and then releasing that to make it sound like I was plotting a revolution. And the worst of it was actually just three months into my ambassadorship when a video started floating around the internet accusing me of being a pedophile. And I tell you that story because that disinformation, you know, how do you prove a non-event How do you fight with it? You go on to Yandex today, the Russian search engine, you'll still get three million hits if you put in McFall pedophile. And we have not come to terms with this, how to, to deal with this appropriately, right? And then we saw uh, all of these techniques uh, in 2016. And it obviously Putin wanted Trump to win and Clinton to lose. And, and he did things to try to help. Whether it mattered in the margins of the election, that's a social science question that's hard to answer. But his intention, I think, was clear. And I just feel like we're, as a country, because of our division and Trump's paranoia about talking about what actually happened in 2016. We're just not having the, the proper conversation. But I have three or four ideas, having lived with this stuff and now dealing with it. Number one, resilience. So we just have to strengthen our ability to conduct our election without it being uh, penetrated by cyber uh, agents. And you're absolutely right. Russia's only one of many. And just basic things like a paper trail for all votes. We don't have that in this country. Or dual authentication for anybody who is involved in the vote counting process. We don't have that in this country. And other cyber enhancements, which we've barely done. That would be the first thing, resilience. Second, and this is more complex, I think, how do we regulate in a more sophisticated way Russian and, and future Chinese and other countries' use of our openness to influence our politics. So should Russian government entities have the right to purchase ads to influence our outcome? I think the answer to that is no. 
But should Sputnik, which is a Russian news organization, completely controlled by the state, serving the interests of the state, this is not the BBC or, or RT for that matter, more famously, should they have the right to tweet, as they did in 2016, hashtag crooked Hillary? That's a harder question. I don't know about that. My sense is no. My sense is that we should not make that illegal, but perhaps we should make it clear to the readers of that, that this is a foreign government entity. And how you do that, you know, working with uh, internet companies here, some are already experimenting with it, but I think that would be at least provide information of who these entities are. Third, obviously I skipped it before, but no, we have an electoral law that says foreigners are not allowed to contribute to candidates, so they shouldn't be able to contribute in kind to candidates in other ways. Then on the far end of the hardest part is what is the role of social media companies in this realm? And if they don't do it, then it'll be regulation. And I don't have a clear answer, but I do think that they have to assume some responsibility. You know, for years, and I know all these companies well, I live here in the Valley, you know, they've always claimed that they're not in the news business, just the infrastructure for information. And that claim I always thought was false, but now I think it's been proven false. An algorithm is an expression of an editorial policy. And the Russians game those algorithms. I mean, I know these people. These are people might find this funny, but I, I know the head of RT. I used to see her often as ambassador. That's what you do. I know the guy that created Sputnik. He's he's a friend of mine of 25 years. Went over to the dark side, but you know we still socialize. And they spend a lot of time gaming algorithms. And most effectively, RT is just dominates YouTube. Fantastic what they do there, and not just photos of cats. You go to YouTube, for instance, I, I ask your listeners to do it, and put in White Helmets, the NGO that works in Syria, and the first 10 or 15 hits will be dominated by RT and their like-minded entities. And that's happening because YouTube allows it to happen, and I think they have to own that. I mean, one suggestion I've made is for every RT piece you put up, put up a BBC piece right next to it. Make them appear in the feed together without comment about what's better or not, but at least so it's there. It's not just only the Russian propaganda dominating it. I'm fascinated by, you know, your friendship with the head of Sputnik, um, not because it's unusual, but because I actually think that in some ways it's quite typical. I mean, when you look at Hungary, Viktor Orban was a great liberal reformer and in the late 1980s, you know, very courageous dissident standing up for democracy. Yeah. Um, and he's friends with all of the people on the other side. I was on a panel recently with Adam Michnik, the great Polish dissident, who was good friends with Viktor Orban in the late 1980s and told stories about that. And as you mentioned both in the book and in our conversation so far, there are many figures like that in Russia who you were friends with when you were living there in the 90s who then sort of slowly went to the dark side. Coming back to the sort of implicit debate, which I think is really a fascinating thing about Russia, of is this all because Vladimir Putin turned and then the incentives for everybody else turned, or doesn't this imply that there's a deeper set of reasons at work here? That if so many people who appeared to be admirable, courageous, pro-democratic activists in the 80s and early 90s, then started to turn, Perhaps this was more foreordained than we would like to think. I mean, you know, an analog to this surely might be some of the African countries that uh, you've studied in your academic work. I mean, you know, when you look at the 1960s, 
there are all of those courageous, idealistic uh, national leaders who lead independence movements, and virtually all of them end up turning into dictators. Now, I think if you look at any one of those countries, it's very tempting to tell a story of how they got corrupted and they ended up in power, and perhaps they started liking the taste of good alcohol and the feel of good suits and so on. But when you see all of these cases going the same way, it no longer seems to be a story of you know individual characters. It seems to be a structural story about the nature of their societies at the time and the kind of incentives they faced. So coming back to Russia, do you think that if Vladimir Putin just happened to have had a different personality or you know to psychoanalyze in the way that some friends of Putin sometimes like to do in Western Europe, you know, if only... His mom had been nicer to him or, you know, George W. Bush a little bit more friendly or something like that. Things might have gone differently or is this really, in retrospect, was the hope for the reset and the hope for these close relationships with Russia actually, with the benefit of hindsight, always doomed to fail? Yeah, in some ways, that's the fundamental question of my book. You know, structures versus agents and do individuals matter? Was there contingency? I lean on that side. And I even run a few counterfactuals in the book from time to time where I say it was not all predetermined. And in part, there's pretty strong evidence to support that because we had a different relationship with Russia in the 1990s. And then we had a different relationship with Russia under Medvedev. And so even in the narrow constraints of the Putin regime, the change of presidents moved the relationship in a different way. That's a pretty good social science outcome, by the way, a, you know, a real life test of do individuals matter. The objection to that would be to say that Russia has an interest in alternating its behavior a little bit. And that there may be that that what sort of individuals can do is to sort of determine which phase takes place when, but that the underlying direction of travel was always going to be the same. Well, yeah, but that, that kind of determinism, I think, is really dangerous. I mean... We used to have grand theories about German culture and thriving for autocracy and Japanese, that they all love dictators. And boy, those look silly, those theories. 40 or 50 years ago, even one of my colleagues at Stanford wrote this big treatise about how Catholic countries, people who believe in Catholicism, love autocracy because most countries in the world back then, majority Catholic, were autocratic. Those theories look really strange. And so I really push back on this cultural determinism stuff because I just... Yeah, the, the point I was making was not cultural determinism. I, I, I agree with you on that. It was more specific to the Putin-Medvedev relationship. The question is, are these two independent agents who actually would be pushing Russia into a very different relationship with the United States? Or is it more of a good cop, bad cop routine and there's a sort of phase shift between them? But you're still focused on Putin. That's my point, right? You're still saying Putin mattered in the Putin regime. And what I'm trying to say is Putin was not foreordained to be the leader of Russia. In fact, let me tell you how he became the leader of Russia. It was a complete accident of history. Boris Yeltsin was the guy that was running Russia in the 1990s. Putin was a small figure, lost his job in St. Petersburg, by the way, through a free and fair election. That's interesting. Now that I think about it, when Subchak lost, he was looking for a job. And one of his buddies, Anatoly Subchak, is, uh, Anatoly Chubias is his name, gave him a mid-level job working in the Kremlin for Boris Yeltsin, right? A guy with very different preferences than we later see with Putin. The heir apparent back then was a guy named Boris Nemtsov. He was a governor out in Nizhny Novgorod, a reformer, a Democrat, liberal, more liberal than me, probably, leaning towards the West. And at a time of economic dislocation, 
You know, the World Bank says it was three times as worse in Russia then as the American economic depression. He won re-election as a reforming Democrat. Oh, and by the way, he was Jewish and openly Jewish. And Yeltsin brings him back, makes it very clear he's the heir apparent to everybody. It was a signal to the elites. He said it on television. He really liked this guy. Names him first deputy prime minister. He's cultivating him to be a national figure. And right in the middle of that, in 1997, that happens. The next year, there's a global financial crisis that hits Russia, August 1998. That compels the government to have to resign because the government uh, crashed, the ruble crashed, the markets crashed. So Nemtsov is out. And see the story I'm telling, right? It has nothing to do with the regime. It has nothing to do with Russian history or, or even Yeltsinism. That happened. The government had to resign. And for reasons that have nothing to do with societal demand, it has to do with protecting Yeltsin and his family's property rights. He chooses this obscure guy, Putin, August 1999, to become his prime minister. Only 7% of Russians even could recognize his name back then. Whether they had a plus or minus, they couldn't because they didn't know who he was. Four months later, he becomes acting president and then he's elected president. So Yeltsin chose him, not the people. There was no demand for him. Had Boris Nemtsov become president, I think the history would have been radically different. That sounds convincing to me. I, I, I'm not sure that I do believe in sort of certainly structure as as all encompassing. It's obviously a a competition between those two factors in every circumstance. Yeah, it's it's not black and white. I want to be clear. Of course, it's not black and white, but there is a big bias. Uh, you know, now I'm going to put my Stanford political science hat of 30 years. One thing I learned in the government is that individuals do matter, but we don't, as social scientists, have very good ways of studying those outcomes. And so what we do is we just dismiss them. And we have a selection bias to things that we can measure. And I think that misses a lot of contingency that I saw firsthand when I worked in the government. That's a crucial point about the state of, of contemporary political science, which I completely agree with. I, I wrote a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, leading up to the election, making a similar point, which is that there was a big crisis in 2008 in the economics profession. Because right. people rightly asked, why didn't we predict the Great Recession? And right. we didn't have an equivalent crisis in political science, even though we should have done. Because all of us certainly significantly failed not just to appreciate the importance of the rise of populism across Western Europe and North America, but particularly the rise of Donald Trump. And I do think that in complicated ways, that has to do with the very thing you said, which is that you would think if you ask a freshman in college, what is political science? they would probably describe, and I think rightly so, a topic area. Well, political science is, you know, the study of what goes on in politics, what drives different kinds of outcomes in politics, what different parts of the world are like, and so on and so forth, right? That is not, in many ways, how political scientists now describe it. They would say that what political science is defined by is a set of methods. And so rather than being guided by the most important questions, and then obviously trying to answer each of those questions in the most methodologically rigorous way we can, we are constrained by a set of methods, which means that the incentives for young scholars are to develop expertise in the most fancy methods and apply them to questions, whether they're interesting and important or not, because it is the mastery of the methods rather than the answering of important questions that actually leads to sort of career progression. But I want to get back to Russia. And one of the nice things about a story that gives real space to contingency and you're right, but particularly international relations doesn't do that much in the academy at the moment. But one of the optimistic things about that is that it allows for contingency to happen down the line. 
Yes. Perhaps at some point Vladimir Putin decides to retire or perhaps more realistically he passes away or something like that. And, yeah. and who knows what the next Russian leader might do and who knows what elections look like then. I had on a podcast recently uh, Vladimir Karamurza, who you may know, a, a Russian opposition figure, and he is very optimistic about the fate of democracy in Russia. How optimistic are you at this point about the future of the political system in Russia and the future more broadly of U.S.-Russian relations? Well, that gives me a great chance to go back to structures and agents and to make sure our listeners understand that it's not one or the other, right? And, and your point earlier that you need to understand how these things interact is important. I love the idea that we need to have the same self-reflection after the election of Donald Trump in political science as economists have. But let's leave that for another day. I am an optimist, and maybe that's because I was born in Montana and has nothing to do with <laughs> being an academic or not, because we're optimistic people. But here's the way I think about that. One is a structural argument. You know, the forces of modernization that we have seen in other parts of the world and over hundreds of years that lead to pressure for more open society. I think those forces have been at play in Russia over the last 30 years, up and down in different ways, but they haven't gone away. Russia is becoming a richer society, a more complex society, a more educated society, and with that become preferences for a more open system of government. I think the evidence for that, you know, the polling evidence and, and just that trend, I do not believe that Russia is somehow going to buck that trend, unless that trend uh, around the world, and you're more expert than I am, uh, has already begun to fade. But I don't see it that way. I, I see that happening. And just anecdotally, now to put my ambassadorial hat on, you know, I just met too many Russians, too many thousands of Russians who just wanted to live a normal life and travel to the West and do better for their kids and don't like corruption and want their vote to matter when they vote, that it's not being distorted by somebody else. And the protests that were happening when I was there, hundreds of thousands of people protesting. In fact, let me tell you a story. I was at an internet high-tech company one day after one of the biggest demonstrations. And I asked the crowd, we talked about high tech and all that kind of stuff. By the way, that's being suppressed because of the right set of legal institutions are not in place to protect people's property rights and intellectual property. That's why we have 50,000 Russians here in the Silicon Valley. So that's a very direct consequence about how political institutions repress economic growth. But to come back to the anecdote, I asked how many people in the room had been at the protest. Most of their hands went up. And then there was another one coming. The one that they had all been at, some people got arrested for the first time. And in fact, things got a little violent and some people are still in jail today. That was May 2012 demonstration. And I asked, well, who's going to be at the next one? And only three hands went up. And there must have been some look of surprise or disappointment on my face because a young woman said to me, Mr. Ambassador, I think you're misreading what you just saw here. I'm not going to protest next time. I have two children that I have to take care of. She was an engineer. I can't afford to go to jail. If I go to jail, who's going to take care of my family? But don't think for a moment that I've changed my preferences about Putin and this regime. I still have the same preferences I had that day I went out and protest. And I don't know when she'll feel safe enough to express those preferences again. But I do think there is, under the surface, a lot of hidden preferences. And again, it's very hard for us to measure as outsiders because, 
you know, in a system where everything's monitored, it's hard to do proper opinion poll work, right? When your phone's listened to, the opinion poll companies are, are controlled by the state and everybody knows that. And Vladimir calls Ivan Ivanovich in uh, Vladivostok and then from Moscow and says, hey, what do you think of Putin? Uh, there's only one rational answer to that question, right? right? So I think under the surface, they don't like the way that things are going. And then in the regime as well, there are lots of people that have agreed to work with Putin for two reasons, and they're, they're intertwined. One is they just get bought off and it's a better future and they don't like the options of being on the street, right? And so they split with their friends. They split with this guy, Boris Nemtsov, that I mentioned earlier, who tragically was assassinated in 2015. Steps from the Kremlin. Yeah, and he was a great guy, a friend of mine. And he used to be friends with all these people, right? I've been at parties with them all. They all are together, the billionaires and the former prime ministers and, and the current uh, deputy prime ministers and the opposition. They're all friends from 20 years ago. There was a split in the road. Some went to work in the government for monetary reasons, but there's a group, and I, I knew this group well, that rationalized it because they thought, well, being in the inside, I can help incrementally push us in a more liberal direction. And whether they did or not, you know, we should let other people judge. But there's a lot of those people scattered throughout the government that I think at the end of Putinism, and let me be a, a brave social scientist and predict, Putin will not rule Russia forever. And <laughs> when that day comes, there will be, I think, an opportunity, like you said, for another leader in contingency, because I do not believe Putin has done a good job of kind of the institutionalization of his uh, rule. He doesn't have a political party. It's all kind of based on him. He's created all this leverage with all these people oftentimes through corrupt practices. So I think it's going to be hard for that system to survive without Putin. Just a few thoughts to sort of wrap up a conversation. The first is just a side note that you made, you know, the 50,000 Russians in Silicon Valley. I'm amazed by the failure of the American business community to understand what kind of cost a deviation from the rule of law has in the long run. I think there's been a very strong sense that tax cuts have come through and even for the White House is doing another slightly crazy thing every day. It hasn't really impacted the day-to-day -day operation of American corporations. So there's no longer a reason to be worried. And I think that that is quite naive about the ways in which we see things like the AT&T Time Warner merger play out, things like the, the money that big corporations apparently paid to Michael Cohen, Trump's personal lawyer, yes. um, but more broadly, the unpredictability that will come with a personalization of political influence over regulatory agencies. And, and this is something on which I really think it's important for all of our listeners and so on to push people in the business community, to make them understand what the long-term costs of that might be. Great point, by the way. I could not agree more. And I think we should do some comparative historical analysis to help make the case. So you should devote more time to that in your, in your future podcast. I like that idea a lot. I will do that. I'm planning to write about it more and would love to have a long conversation about that. Perhaps we can get some people from business in to talk with them about this. Yes, it'd be great. The second thing is about sort of optimism and pessimism, especially bringing it back to, you know, the core concerns of this podcast, which is populism in the United States and Western Europe. But there's sort of a few points I, I want to make there. I mean, one is about distinguishing carefully between people's more tolerant attitudes and preferences for a relatively open world and their attitudes towards democracy. 
Because I think, unfortunately, that these two things don't go as closely together as yeah. people think. So I do think that modernization theory, the basic belief that as countries become more affluent and more urban, they start to be more tolerant, for example, towards sexual minorities and so on, uh, tends to be true. And there are some countries where that takes a long time. Russia certainly is not a very friendly place for gay people and LGBTQ people today. But on that, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think over time, that will likely change. And we've seen significant globalizations on that in lived practice, if not always in the laws, you know, in countries from China to other parts of the world. I'm not sure, though, that that necessarily corresponds to a pro-democratic attitude. You see, obviously, populist movements that at least pretend to be very pro-gay, for example, in the Netherlands and in France and in other places. You see parts of the world that are pretty liberal in social issues, like Ontario, the biggest, or most populous at least, province in, in Canada, seeming to now tend towards populists. So I'm not sure that uh, that more liberal world on social issues, better for it is in itself for that reason, is also going to be safe for democracy necessarily. And that raises a sort of second question, which is that, you know, I do think at the same time that people in the end desire individual freedom and they desire collective self-rule. And that desire exists both in, in parts of Siberia today and it will continue to exist in the United States and Western Europe for many decades to come. And that will set people at some point against autocratic regimes. They will grow impatient with and angry at autocratic regimes at some point. The question is twofold. First of all, might currently democratic countries end up as autocracies because citizens forget what they have to lose and don't understand how terrible those regimes might be, especially when the agent of change is somebody who gets elected claiming to be the most democratic person because they truly speak for the people rather than openly anti-democratic. And the second is, once you are in a country like Russia, which is a dictatorship, or once some Western countries might turn to dictatorships, will the desire to live in freedom and self-rule be strong enough to overthrow those regimes, even further will have a lot of technical capacity at the disposal to try and quash opposition movements. And there, I suppose I take a mixed message from you about Russia, that yes, there's a lot of people who perhaps desire a more democratic system, and we certainly should take opinion polls about you know, all the Russians loving Vladimir Putin with a very, very large grain of salt. But it is also very difficult to organize against a competent dictator. Yeah, it is. And you're better to answer your first question than I about the world. But let me say two things about Putin, both domestically, but also internationally, because you give me a chance to say that related here. I think people underestimate that don't follow Russia closely. They underestimate how much Putin himself has identifies himself as the leader of a transnational conservative nationalist movement. Christian Orthodox values against liberalism, against the decadent liberal West, against liberal institutions constraining sovereignty. He didn't always think this way. This, this has been an evolution, but I've seen it. I've listened to him speak. Uh, I know the philosophers that he has invoked, and he used it first to consolidate his own power within Russia, but he now sees himself as a global leader anchoring this movement. And not only does he has a set of ideas that he's developed, he's invested tremendous resources, you know, measured in billions of dollars, not hundreds of millions of dollars, to propagate these ideas. 
And I think we in America, we don't even think we're in this ideological struggle with him, right? We're, we're barely noticing until recently, but he himself has been engaged for over a decade. And he right now thinks that he is achieving real results, both with leaders like uh, Viktor Urban, like you mentioned, but also political parties throughout Europe and also through individuals around the world, including here in, a, in the United States. There's a big overlap between alt-right thinking and Putin's favorite philosophers. Mr. Dugan appears on their shows. I mean, that movement is happening. And I think we need to understand whether it's instrumental or not, that's a different argument. And it's ironic that Putin would be part of this anti-elite movement, when uh, anti-corrupt movement, when he himself has been in power for 20 years. But he is involved in an ideological contest with the West. And I actually think he's doing pretty well at it. To the longer, harder question about what happens later, it's a sophisticated regime and it's uh, with a lot of resources. Oil and gas gives them a lot of resources. They control those resources, right? The KGB never died. That was a mistake in the 90s. Those institutions should have been dismantled. They weren't. And now one of their own is the president of that country. And many of the key posts in that system in the government and in the business community are part of that KGB network. Uh, you know, we need social network theory to study their relations, but they're there. And then, you know, he controls all the media. He controls the parliament. My boss, <laughs> President Obama, when I was in the government, used to joke that, you know, because we would let him know his approval ratings versus Putin's. <laughs> By the way, Obama at one time in 2010 was 20 points more popular in Russia than he was in America, just to remind you how quickly preferences can change. But he used to complain that Putin was popular and he'd say, well, yeah, if I control all the television stations and all the parties and all the NGOs in, in my country, I'd be at 80% too. So it's a sophisticated system. Um, and then it's a nuanced one. You know, the, the creator of it, the guy named Surkov, you know, he would never use the word dictatorship or autocracy. He calls it managed democracy, sovereign democracy. So there's just enough of these release valves to keep it in place. So I think that system itself, pretty hard to overcome with the resources the opposition has, but it is dependent on one leader. And I think when he steps down or no longer rules Russia, that's when you'll see the system begin to wane. On that optimistic note, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Michael. Yeah, that was great. That was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Get in touch with some Russian bots and have them tweet propaganda about The Good Fight all over their social networks. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.